I hope you realize by now that this series is called Toxic. <laughs> you walked in, you saw toxic signs everywhere, you saw percussionists that were exemplifying that to us. The subject for six weeks is toxic. There are, there are beliefs or there are thoughts that if we hold those beliefs or thoughts, it'll be toxic to our soul. It'll be poison to our soul. It will disrupt, destroy our lives. There are thoughts and their beliefs. We'll talk about some of those. There are emotions If we hold them and hang on to them and don't rid ourselves of them, they're toxic as well. They're poisons to our souls as well. We'll talk about some of those. Then there are behaviors as well. If we live in some behaviors and and won't remove ourselves from them, they will destroy us. They're toxic to us. So we're going to begin with this, uh, the beliefs that we may hold that are misconceptions about God. The the misconceptions about God. A.W. Tozer once said, What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I I read that the first time years ago, and I wrestled with that. I thought, I don't know if I believe that. I know a bunch of really important stuff, but the more I wrestled with it, the more I thought about it, I actually believe that's true because if, if you don't believe there's a God at all, it will deeply affect your life. There'll be no miracles that come when illness comes. There'll be no heaven. There'll be no hell. That doesn't exist. There'll be no overarching purpose. We're all just an accident. You have to make up your own purpose. There'll be no absolute truth. You'll just have to figure out your own. It will deeply affect your life if you believe there is no God. If you believe there is a God, it will make a huge difference if you think he's a God of love or not. Huge difference if you think he's a God of justice or not. The God of mercy or not, a God who is always present and knows you or not, it'll make a huge difference. I, I agree with Tozer. The things that come to our mind when we think about God are the most important things about us. So we're going to talk about, about that. Uh, as I was praying about a month ago about where to go on this, wh- where, would we, where do we struggle the most? What's the deepest misconception about God? I've taught entire series about God. Love, grace, justice, on and on and on. So I was praying about a month ago, and I felt God say, remember back 25 years ago, you were in this small cafe, and you were posing a similar question. And and I remembered what he was just prompting in in my mind, and it was the second year of seminary. We lived in this little town of Wilmore, Kentucky. Um, We'd begun to know some friends and neighbors that did not yet know Jesus, and we were trying to find a way to introduce them to him And I found myself in that cafe, and I wrote at the top of the page, what do people in Wilmore need to know? And I wrote down four things. I said, they they need to know God is real. They need to know that. They need to know God loves them intimately. It's crucial. They need to know God is trustworthy. That's big. But there was a fourth thing I wrote wrote down, and I, I worded it awkwardly. But in essence, it said, they need to know that God is actively engaged in the world today. And I would learn, as time unfolded, I would learn this was the most important of all for the people in Wilmore, Kentucky. This was the most important of all for them. Because I began to realize that if they they knew or heard the stories of God's active engagement back in biblical times, and by the way, the Bible is filled with that for over 3,000 years, if they were to hear the story about Abraham and Sarah, And hear that Abraham and Sarah had probably been married about 50 years, never had children, couldn't have children. And God says to Abraham one day, when Abraham is 75 and Sarah is 65, and says, hey, Abraham, Sarah's going to give you a son. 
And Abraham goes, whoa. And Sarah laughs. (laughs) God's promised him, but it wasn't immediate. So God had to just assure them a couple more times. It was 25 years in, in the making so Abraham is 100, and Sarah is 90, and, and, and Sarah gives birth to a son, and, and God was deeply, actively engaged in their lives. That's in Scripture. That was just the norm for Abraham and Sarah. We talked the last two weeks about this man named Moses, and a number of you would know his story, and we especially talked about the day that he and the Israelites had, they finally got freedom from their captives, and, but they found themselves backed up to the sea, and they found that Pharaoh now had gathered the armies, and Pharaoh decided to hunt them down and to kill many and capture the rest. And, and so the armies of Pharaoh there is crashing down upon Moses and the Israelites. They're back to the sea, and God parts the sea. So much so, he makes dry ground for them, and they escape on dry ground. And then the enemy comes through the seabed, and God crashes the sea upon them and frees them. God was actively engaged in Moses' life. There's a man named Joshua that we would read about and talk about and tell him about. And there's a day that God said to Joshua, there's this city of Jericho. I want you to take these people and go capture it. And, and Jericho was a city known by Joshua. It was this great walled city. It was this fortress. And God would say, that's no problem, Joshua. Here's what you do. You take all these people and you, you march around the city of Jericho exactly the way I tell you to. And they did it and the walls collapsed. God was actively engaged in his life. Jesus comes, much, much more. Jesus comes. He is God the Son, actively engaged. He he healed the sick. He calmed the raging sea. He took a sack lunch and fed thousands of hungry people, actively engaged. God the Son. He dies. He rises from the dead. He ascends to heaven. And there's a guy named Paul and Silas, and they're, they're traveling, telling people about Jesus who rose from the dead. They're in this Roman city of Philippi, this great city, and, and they're so effective, and, and God is working and stirring. So many people begin to believe this. They abandon their false gods. And there are these idol makers that have been making a killing on these idols of false gods, and, and their business is going south. And, and so they put these charges against Paul and Silas. They get arrested, and, and they t- rip the clothes off their backs, and they whip them nearly to death, shred their backs, throw them in prison, a little time passes to go into nighttime, and prisoners are falling asleep, and jailers are trying to stay awake, and all of a sudden there's this singing. And there's this, this is Paul and Silas, they are singing, praising God while the blood is still dripping off their backs. And about that time, there's an earthquake, and their chains fall, and their prison gates open, and they're free men. God actively engaged in their life. What I learned is this if that's all. Some people in Wilmore who didn't believe in Jesus, if that's all they knew, it would just be fable to them if they didn't have credible stories of God actively engaged in lives today, they could never trust Jesus. You know why I know that? I was once one of those. Maybe you're one of those. And not just was it crucial for those that didn't know Jesus. I knew it was crucial for those that did because I knew a number of them, and I had seasons like this in my past. I knew a number of them. They really believed in Jesus, but they didn't really, if you dug down to the core of their soul, they didn't really believe God would ever really work in their life. So they were thankful God made them. They were really thankful Jesus died for them and saved them. They're looking forward to heaven one day. But if you look at their daily life, they were just walking through it on their own. They, they deeply needed to know that God was active in the world today. 25 years ago, that's what people in Wilmore needed. God was saying to me, that's exactly what the harbor needs to know today. 
It's exactly what the Bayer needs to know today is God is actively engaged in the world today. Can I bring it closer to home? God is actively engaged in your world today. God is actively involved and engaged in your life today. If this were not true, I would have never even been sitting in the cafe in Walmart, Kentucky 25 years ago. If this were not true, I wouldn't be standing before you today. Marie and I both uh, became followers of Jesus within a week of each other. I was 30, she was 28, both been raised in church, took us a long time. Began to change our lives radically. I was in the oil business and I, I had loved the oil business up to that time, but, but uh, it got so much better. It was no longer really quietly, subtly at the core of my being, no longer about me, no longer about promotion, no longer about claim, acclaim, no longer about money. It was about how could I, how do you live this life out in the old business following Jesus? What does it look like? How do you work? What do you accomplish? How do you live? It, some of the, they were the best years I'd had yet at that point. I was five years into that following Jesus in the old business, and I was walking on Surfside Beach in 1989, a good friend of mine, working for the same oil company, walking down the beach, and he turns to me, and he says, why do you think God gave you such a position of prominence in this company? And I laughed, because you know what he was saying? He was saying, Rick, dude, I know you. You're not that smart. <laughs> you are not that smart. You're not that charismatic. You're not that good. It had to take a miracle of God I party in the sea to give you this position? Like, why do you think he did that? Why do you think he went all in for that? And I said, well, I really think it's because somehow he wants me to be able to point people to Jesus and show them how good, how great he is. Soon after that, uh, Marie and I were leaving church one day, picked up the boys from the children's program, and someone stopped me and said, you missed your calling. You should have been a pastor. I was surprised. I felt complimented. I said, thank you. That's really nice of you. And went on and thought, hey, that's really cool. A few days later, maybe a week later, someone else from church stopped me and said, hey, you missed your call. You should have been a pastor. I thought, hey, that's cool. Really nice compliment. But then it happened a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time, and a sixth time. Somewhere along there, it became really irritating. These people from church stopping me saying, you missed your calling. And somewhere around the seventh or eighth time, or maybe it was the tenth time, somewhere I, I just began saying, you know what? I tried, I tried not to show my aggravation. I tried to be nice, but I said, you know what? I am not called to be a pastor. I'm in the old business. I will never be a pastor. And I said that probably up through the 20th time, and then finally, thank God, it quit. To my right, it just finally quit. So soon after, Marie and I were at a restaurant, and a waiter comes up to us, and He's going to take our order, and all of a sudden, he looks up like he's had a revelation. And he looks at me and says, are you a pastor? It, it shocked me, and, and I said, I'm, no, I'm a follower of Jesus, but no, I work in the oil business. To be honest with you, those 20 times from the church, I'm engineer by training, and, and I, there was a part of me that knew this is beyond coincidence, but I was not going to admit that because I had always heard you could flip a coin a hundred times, and if you do it long enough, it'll come up heads all hundred times, and I kept telling myself, it's coincidence, coincidence, so 20 times at church, now all of a sudden, there's this guy at the restaurant, are you a pastor? I'm thinking, how weird is this? So a few days later, I'm at a store, and I go to check out, and a clerk looks up and says, are you a pastor? I said, no, no, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I work in the oil business. And, and then I was at a gas station, and I need to do a pause and give a history lesson to some of you. 
25 to 30 years ago, the phrase pay at the pump did not exist. There's no pay at the pump 25, 30 years ago. I'd go to, I went to a gas station a few days after that, and I went in to pay for it, and the guy looks up and says, are you a pastor? And it happened over and over and over again, so much so that this is no lie. It got to, I would buy gas. It was happening so often. I would buy gas. I would go inside, and I would say, $10 on lead. I would slap down 10 bucks, and I would say, I'm not a pastor. I'm not called to be, and I'm in the oil business. And I would march out some bewildered you know, clerk that thinks, who is that fool that just blew in here and blew out. And, and then I, I, uh, I couldn't hide that this was more than coincidence, but I did not like the thought of what this might mean. I loved our life. I had loved the old business for 15 years. I loved it even more the last five or six years of following Jesus. I, I, I loved it. I, I loved the fact that it felt like just a natural habitat for me. God gave me some gifts in it. There's no lie. I loved the financial benefits of it. I was comfortable. I loved all of that. I, I didn't want the unknown. I didn't want the, all of the risk. I, honestly, I didn't want to sort out what that means financially. There was even a part of me that wasn't just all about me. There was, I, I knew in those five or six years, there were quite a few people that were now following Jesus because I was in the oil business. And a pastor had never touched them, never reached them. And I found myself saying to God, why, why would you ever move me out of the oil business? Why would you ever do that? I'm not, I'm not moving. So after about 20 times, some people in restaurants and stores and gas stations finally, thank God, quit to my relief. So right after that, uh, Marie and I go to East Texas. We're going to lead a, co-lead a retreat. Marie had just recovered from a two-year-long illness. One of those years was bedridden. It was a hard, hard illness. Just recovered from it. We were in East Texas a day early to, repair, to prepare for the retreat. I hadn't done my prep for teaching, and so I get up. I start working on it, and nothing is coming. It's just a total blank slate, so I think I might as well lay down and take a nap. Maybe I'll wake up, fresh mind, start again. And, and I'm not, not one of those people that I hardly ever wake up with any recognition that I dream during the night. I, I'm told that we all dream all the time, but I, I rarely wake up with any recognition it happened. But this nap, I had the most vibrant dream of my life. In my dream, the chairman of the board of our company came to me and said, Rick, we have, we have chosen you, we've picked you to go tell everyone about us. We've chosen you to be the one to convince people to trust in us. We've chosen you to be the one to convince people to invest in us. We've chosen you, Rick. And in the dream, I was thinking coherently, and I thought, this sounds like a really big job, a really hard job. This means some sacrifice beyond what I've done, not just for me, but for Marie and for our sons. This means sacrifice. But my next thought was, but what an honor. Like, he picked me. In my dream, I looked at Bob Hopfuhr, and I said, I'll do it. And I woke up in that instant, and I felt God say, if you'll do it for him, why won't you do it for me? Sometime that weekend was when I said to God, I, I'll do it. I'll do it. But he had taught me enough through the years to know that something like that, it wasn't enough for me to know, for me to be ready, for me to hear from him, and, and then to drag Marie along with me. He taught me better than that, and I knew she would have to come to a point one day where, where she felt we were called to do it as well. And so a little while after that, um, uh, we decided that we would go off, since she'd gotten over the illness, we would go off to uh, Beaver's Bend State Park in southeastern Oklahoma. 
it's on Broken Bow Lake. Some of you probably have been there. We tried to get away for about five days. And maybe my memory's bad, but I think the first night we were there, I think we argued the first night. And the, the second night, we decided we liked each other again. And <laughs> by the third night, um, Marie was talking, and she says, you know, I've come through the illness, and it's just reminded me, we don't, have, we don't know how long we have. And even if we get 70 or 80 years, it's, it's really not that long. And so I just want to know, what do you really want to do with your life? And I said, well, I know what God wants me to do. He wants me to be a pastor. It was no surprise to her. And she said, then, then you should become one. We should do it. I got up before, way before sunrise the next morning. I thought, well, how does this happen? How do you do this? And, and I knew I needed to go to seminary, so I'm early morning hours before dawn, I'm I'm processing that, and I felt God say, look, when this happens, you're going to be a full-time husband, a full-time dad, just like you have been. You're going to be a full-time student. You're not going to have time to work. And so I'm processing that, and I'm starting to do some financial planning, and I'm processing how much seminary costs, which is a lot of money. I'm processing how does a family of four live for three years with no income? And I end up with this, this large number and later in the morning, Marie and I sat down together, and I said, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm seeing. This is, this is the only way I see it happening, and it's a huge number, and we prayed about it. We both felt at peace about it, so we decided we would, when we went back from Beaver's Bend, we'd go back home, we'd begin to save like crazy, and even if we did, we realized we had debt to pay off, and there's such a huge sum of number. Even if we, we cut everything we could imagine, it was going to take years to save this amount of money, but we were going to begin to do it. We're going to save everything we can until we reach this sum of money, then I'll quit, go to seminary. And then we also decided, since it was going to be a long ways off, we decided that one year later, the following October, which would be October of 1991, that we would make this trip to Kentucky. Never been there before. Check out the state. Go to Asbury Seminary. Never seen it. Check it out. See what the future would be one day. And so we, we go home. We begin to save like crazy, but some of our investments begin to tank and go south, and they keep going south. And we had some unusual large expenses. And as the months are unfolding, moving toward the next October to make the trip, we have less and less savings than ever. And we're getting deeper into it. And I said to God, if, if this is really you, I will do it. I will do anything for you. But God, if this is just my crazy, weird thoughts, if this isn't you, I don't want to wreck our lives and go do this. So would you show me one more time? And one more thing, God. If you leave me in the oil business, I know there'll be people in heaven one day. So if I become a pastor, you've got to promise me there'll be at least one more person in the end in heaven than if I stay here. Promise me that. So October hits, and it's Friday. It's October the 4th, and we're going to travel the next day, drive a 1,000 miles to Kentucky, and that day, the president calls a meeting of the leadership team, and he says the executive council had worked out details. He said, we're going to lay off people. It was one of the oil downturns, and we all knew that. It's the plan to lay off people. And then he said, we're going to do something we've never pondered before. We're going to allow people to resign, and we will give them the same severance package they would have gotten if we laid them off. And he had a thousand percent of my attention when he said that. The VP of Human resources stood up and started describing the formula that would calculate severance. Years of service, salary, and I'm doing the math, and when he finishes, the sum is exactly the amount. We put before God a year before, exactly the amount. And it rocked my world. I thought, 
this isn't going to be a go check it out trip. I, we're going. I'm quitting my career. I went home and I told Maria. It rocked her world. We left the next day, thousand mile trip. We're like deer in the headlights. Now I'm frozen to the wheel, thousand miles. What are we doing? What, what? We get there. We go to Asbury Seminary. I start signing papers. It seemed like for hours so I could get registered and all. We we look for a place to live. We, we found out in this little town of Wilmore, there are only two houses in the entire place. So we rent this little tiny cracker box of a house, and, and the owner or landlord said, you've got to sign up for at least a year. I said, no, 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 no. You're going to give me a three-year lease. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be your three-year. I don't want you, you know, bailing out on us. I don't want you dumping us. I, I, three-year lease. And he said, I've never done it before. Three-year lease. We got this. So we come back then, and I go to my boss, and I I said, I'm going to resign, but you have to know, I, I, I love this place. I love this company. I love this business. There's nothing in the world I'd rather do. No place in the world I would rather do it. But this is why I'm resigning. And I told him the entire story, from walking on Surfside for the entire story. He sat back and said, wow. But you remember, Rick, that, that the executive council has to actually approve a resignation for someone to get the severance. I would sign it, but the entire executive council has signed it. I would sign it, but so what will you do if they don't approve it? I sat back and said, you know, after all God's done, we're going. We're going. So he went to the executive council, and he came back and told me what happened. He said, I walked in. We, we began to talk, and the first thing I said is, well, well, Rick Baldwin has resigned. And he said, the most senior VP, he said he slapped the table hard. He stood up and said, that is not going to happen. We already have plans made, already done. I will never approve that. It's not going to happen. I'm catching a plane. I'm going wherever he's at. I'm going to talk some sense into that man. And then at that point, my, my boss said, but I, I probably ought to tell you why he's quitting. And he told the entire executive council the entire story of God. From Surfside on the entire story, when he finished, there was this long silence. And, and that other senior VP sat back and said, you know what? After hearing that, I'd be afraid not to approve the severance package. <laughs> So it went public that afternoon, and I got a call from someone in the company, and they didn't say, hey, I heard you resigned. They said, I heard you resigned. It's about God. Tell me about it. I got to tell them the whole story. And then the phone rang again, somebody else in the company, and it wasn't, hey, I heard you resigned. It's, I heard you resigned. Something about God. Tell me about it again and again and again throughout the entire company. And then it began to spread outside our company. I'd worked with nearly every major oil company in the country, and calls began to come from all across these companies. It would end up, they would come from three continents. Every time someone said, I heard you resigned. Something about God. Tell me the story. And I found myself thinking back to 1989 Surfside Beach, the guy's saying, why do you think, I know you, I know you, you're not good enough. Why do you think God put you in this position of prominence? And I said, I think it's because God wants somehow me to put a spotlight on Jesus, how good he is, how great he is. So the company buys our house, which is a big blessing. To our surprise, they paid nearly the entire moving expense to move to Kentucky, which is a big blessing. They paid my first year tuition of seminary, which is a huge blessing. But then it began to dawn on me, when I built that plan a year before, the financial plan, I just assumed I would, I would quit one day and I would start classes the next day. Well, I quit early October. Classes wouldn't begin until early, early February. It's a four-month gap, and we'd be burning cash for four months. And no seminary credits, nothing going on, just burning cash, and that wasn't part of the plan. And then this contact came from the company, and they said, hey, we're going to just extend your pay for a couple of weeks. 
And I said, thank you. That's going to help. They had no idea, no idea when I'd ever start school. And then another contact came and said, hey, we're going to extend your pay for four more weeks. And then another going to extend your pay five weeks. And by the end, at the very end of the four months, the very last day of the four months, the, very, the day before I'd start classes, they paid me full salary, full benefits to the very last day before classes began. And then a little more time passed, and it, it became apparent we weren't there for three years. We were there for three and a half, and that wasn't part of the plan. I didn't know how we were going to cover another six months of living expenses with no income at all. It wasn't part of the plan. A few weeks after that, my former boss called and said, hey, Rick, how are you? And, hey, by the way, we're going to give you a bonus. And I said, you realize I don't work there anymore, right? <laughs> There's a downturn in the oil business. They laid off a bunch of people. There was no money. And I said, candidly, I am really surprised. And he said, we really are too. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, I'm curious. They had no idea what's going on with us. I'm curious, why are you doing this? And he said, honestly, we don't know. <laughs> We're just going to send you a check. And he told me the amount. And by the time the government took their piece, it was the exact amount to live for six more months. I finished the first semester, went to visit my parents in the Rio Grande Valley. And when they first knew I was quitting the oil business, they were really, really concerned. I mean, they thought I'd lost my mind and thought we'd be living with them from then on and everything. And so I finished the first semester. <laughs> they finally got used to the idea that we'd probably survive on our own. Uh, and so, so we're there for a week, and there's this one night that my mom says, do you remember, you were probably 13 or 14, is after church one day, little church we, we went to, there was this couple, they were kind of strange couple, do you remember them stopping you, giving you some money? And it all came flooding back. I'd forgotten it for a long time. I was 13 or 14, and church is done. I'm sure I could have told you nothing about the sermon, uh, but church is done, and there's this strange-looking couple. It's deep South Texas. It's hot. And the guys are wearing this heavy coat. And they just look weird. And they stopped me. And, and the guy said, look me in the eye. We want to tell you, you're going to be a pastor one day. And then he pulled out his billfold and took out $20 and said, so you'll never forget, I'm going to give you $20. And that was a fortune. It would be like 200 bucks today. It's a fortune. Here's $20. You're going to be a pastor one day. And my mom was reminding me it all came flooding back. Friends, God is actively engaged in the world today. God is actively engaged in your world today. God is actively engaged in your life today. How can you live your life in a way that will open yourself up for God to work most actively in your life? How can you live your life in such a way you'll most recognize when God is actively working in your life? There's a man named Isaiah, maybe the most famous prophet of all, wrote this one of the longer books in the Bible called Isaiah. And some of us would recognize that God was really actively involved in Isaiah's life because we might know most about him. He's known as a prophet, which he was. But a couple of his prophecies were about the Messiah coming. And he lived 700 years before Jesus came. But you might recognize, because we often talk about these on Christmas Eve, you might recognize he was the one that would write in Isaiah 7, 14. He would write, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. He was the one that would write in Isaiah 9, 6, again, a Christmas Eve verse, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders 
He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 700 years before Jesus came. God was deeply, actively engaged in this man's life. You may not know, though, Isaiah 36 and 37, parallel passage, 2 Kings 18, 19. There was a season where the Assyrian nation, the Assyrian army, mighty, mighty power, much more powerful than the nation of Israel. The Assyrian army comes into Israel to capture and and take them. They go city to city. They're killing. They're massacring uh, Jewish people. They take some as captives. They finally get to Jerusalem. They have put siege around Jerusalem, and it's clear they are all going to die or be captured by a brutal slave lord. They're going to be captured. So Hezekiah, the king, goes to Isaiah. He says, Isaiah, I've been going to God. You know God really, really well, Isaiah. Go to God. Plead for us. Isaiah goes to God, and Isaiah brings God's answer back to Hezekiah and says, it's no problem. Don't worry. Well, that was okay for a couple of days or so, but after a few more days, Hezekiah's thinking, I I need more than this, and he goes back to Isaiah. Isaiah, I've been praying. You know God really well, and Isaiah goes to God, and this time God says, there's no problem, because by tomorrow, they're going to pack and be gone. That night, this murderous army, that night God killed 185,000 of their army. When the survivors awoke in the morning, there were corpses all around them. And the survivors, it says, packed their bags and ran home to mommy. (laughs) God was actively working in this man's life. You know why? It goes back to the beginning. Early on when Isaiah begins to write, this is early experience that he had. God gives him this clear vision about heaven and about God in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. Isaiah writes, Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to his people? Who will go for us? I said. And I said, Here am I, send me. He was saying to God, Here am I, send me. He was saying, My life is yours. Do whatever you want with me. And what I've begun to learn is, is, is that that is the way to live out this life. That is the way. If you want to open yourself for God to do maximum activity in your life, if you want to open yourself to recognize when God's acting, if you begin today by saying, here I am, send me, it's very, very unlikely that he's going to send you as a missionary to a foreign country, although it's happened to a few here. Very unlikely he's going to send you to be a pastor, although it's happened to a few. Very unlikely he'll send you to work in a church, but it's very likely if you're a parent, if you say, here I am, send me into the life of my child today. Hey, you know my child's heart. You know what's going on in their world. Send me into their world with your wisdom. Send me. Hear my send me. Or if you're married, wake up in the morning and say, God, hear my send me to my spouse. Send me with grace and patience and love and courage. If you're working in the workplace, maybe it's God, in the workplace at this the time you're praying, it's chaos and there's some tough stuff going on. Maybe you wake up in the morning in that season and, and the message that you declare to God is, here, am I, here I am, send me. Send me into the chaos. Give me the courage to walk into the tough situation, the tough questions. Give me wisdom. Give me grace. Here, I, here am I, send me. Or maybe you have no idea what may come and you just begin, begin the day by saying to God, here am I, send me. Let me be salt and light in the world today. Here am I, send me. Many of you here are your followers of Jesus, which means there was a time you, you came to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave. And you said to him, please forgive me. 
I'll trust you to forgive me. And then you said, please lead my life. Or maybe you said, I'm surrendering my life to your leadership. But I would tell you that the very same words could be conveyed by saying, here I am, send me. I mean, that's a declaration of surrender, of leadership. Here I am, send me. So if you're a follower of Jesus, in essence, your brand new life began on the day you trusted Jesus. And the call of following him and the response to calling him is to recognize God is active in your world today. And the call to him each morning is, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. A number of you in here, you've never trusted Jesus and to do so, you have to understand he, he died for you. He died with you in mind. He died knowing all of your sins, past, present, future. He died for you and died for your sins. And he rose from the dead for you. He's been waiting to this very day for you to believe that. And to say to him, please forgive me. Please lead me. Or if you choose to say, here am I, send me. They'd say to God, this is the first day of the rest of my life. Here am I, send me. God is actively engaged in the world today. To believe anything less is toxic to one's soul. He's actively engaged in your world today. To believe anything less is poison to your life. He's actively involved in your life today and every day. To miss that is to have your life unravel from what it could be. God is active in the world. Here am I. Send me. I'm going to invite the band to come up. And as they begin to sing a worship song, I want to invite you to one of two things. You can absorb the words of this song. They, they declare truth. Absorb these words You can sit and absorb them. You can stand and absorb them. Or if you decide to, then pick up and give voice to these words as well. Maybe you don't even believe them yet. Maybe you do, but give voice to them if you choose to. And begin to declare these words. They're profound words. So the band is going to begin, and uh, I'll come back, and I'll I'll do do a close-up for us. Father in heaven, you are, you are, actively engaged now every life in this room may the heart cry even now especially if it's for the very first time may the heart cry be here am I send me I pray in Jesus name amen